Hello and welcome to Patmos. Thank you for watching and or listening. Today we're going to be talking about the importance of the virtue of obedience and when it applies and when it doesn't. For, uh, first, I'd like to ask everybody who's listening to the podcast, go please leave a rating and review on iTunes. If you're watching on YouTube, like the video, subscribe and hit the notification bell, all the same stuff that every single um, podcaster asks, asks you to do. Um, I also have a small community that I have started and um, started on locals.com. It's outside the Silicon Valley control mechanism, which I like. It's started by Dave Rubin. And I, I like it because it's it's very um, nice. It's not like a lot of these other ones that, you know, it's not their fault that they don't have a lot of money to spend on a lot of the more slicker kind of user interfaces and stuff. But locals is actually very nice and that it's pretty simple to use. It's it doesn't have problems and things like that. Uh, joining is free. It's absolutely free to join. You can read all the stuff. I don't do any subscribe uh, subscriber-only posts uh, just yet, uh, but you can read everything for free. If you want to comment, if you want to ask questions, if you want to send a message there, um, if you want to post yourself, uh, the minimum that Locals requires is a $2 uh, monthly subscription, which, you know, it's 2 bucks. But um, the reason that they require that is that, you know, they take a, a cut of every subscription and that's how they pay for, you know, their coders, their developers, all those sorts of things. So I'd really uh, like it if you go over there. And even if you don't want to do anything, if you want to help out, um, sign up over there. If you'd rather donate via cryptocurrency, um, I have the addresses in the pinned welcome post at the Locals community site. So head over to ozymandias.locals.com. That's O-Z-Y-M-A-N-D-I-A-S.locals.com. The link is also in my Twitter, which is twitter.com slash paracelsusburns, P-A-R-A-C-E-L-S-U-S-B-U-R-N-S. So... I know I got a lot of bunch of weird names that are not easy or intuitive to, to spell. I should probably change that, but it is what it is. Um, so on obedience, I'd like to, I'd like to start off by saying, I think that a lot of the people who are watching, listening are probably like myself and kind of new to the embracement of traditional Christianity. And by that, I mean kind of the, I don't want to say true Christianity to make other people feel like, well, you know, not really true Christian, but I mean like the, it is really the, the, the true, the tradition is the truer, more reverent, more worshipful, worshipful version of Christian practice. Um, so a lot of you are probably new to the traditional Christian, um, uh, practices and the traditional Catholic movement. Um, one of the things, though, that I've noticed on what's kind of loosely called trad Twitter is an extreme, um, not amongst, I mean, everybody, but a lot, you know, some of the bigger voices is kind of this extreme lack of charity among some of those involved. Now, unlike detractors of the traditional movement, I understand how social media works and how often those voices are amplified by the algorithms um, and, but it's also against the virtue of of charity, which I'll talk about a few times here, for those people who are using those voices as a cudgel against all of traditionalism, um, to assume that those three, four, five voices who are associated with the trads, that said a mean comment 
on their posts and tweets or whatever means that all trads are terrible. I've seen this as well. And I also understand why some trads do have more of an edge. Many of them have been around for a while and have become jaded. They've lost patience. They've had the same conversations, the same arguments, those types of things. Um, and they've really lost patience with their fellow man, and especially the Catholics who have embraced the Norvis Ordo Mass, which is the new mass that was promulgated since the 1960s. Some people in the trad community may see this as an attack on them, an attack on the whole traditionalist movement. It absolutely is not. It really, really isn't. Um, but I, I want to do this, though, as kind of a reminder, a warning, an exhortation to those in it, as well as those now discovering to not, you know, discovering this movement, to not lose, lose hope, especially don't lose the virtue of charity. Don't lose your love. Don't lose your zeal. And especially, you know, with that, right, by losing that charity, by losing that love, you lose your effectiveness in promoting the more pure, the more reverential worship of Christ, his blessed mother and holy mother church. Uh, let's first talk about obedience. Obedience in the church reflects the cross. So, you have to ask, does the person have legitimate authority over us? This is the vertical bar of the cross. And is that person acting within their legitimate jurisdiction? That's the horizontal bar of the cross. A priest in, in our parish has the vertical authority over us because he has jurisdiction over that parish, the horizontal. Say if you live in Austin, Texas, and a bishop from Oakland, California comes in, he has the vertical authority of a bishop, but he does not have the, the, the horizontal jurisdiction over your parish and thus you or that priest really has no duty to obey something that he would order and this is where the virtue of prudence resides if a bishop of another jurisdiction orders his diocese to praise a rosary daily and attend first saturday devotion or blessed mother as she stated at fatima you aren't under obligation because he's bishop of a different um, jurisdiction you're under obligation to obey but prudence would dictate that this is godly advice, and you should do such a thing regardless of the lack of requirement of obedience. We are bound by obedience as Catholics. Orthodox has the, the, has the same level. They have differing understandings of it. And this is one of the rubs of Catholicism. This is really one of the harder points is this concept of obedience. Um, Christ instituted his church as a hierarchical organization. It was not a round table. Um, it was not a horizontal one of personal revelation or personal opinion. And we'll get to when you are not bound to obedience in just a bit. But generally speaking, you are bound to the authority of the church, of those in the church who have authority over you. The Pope has universal authority over the church, the bishops over the region, the priest in his parish, etc., etc., etc. Blessed Francis Palau said, that for us to have perfect obedience, we need to have these qualities. There's six different qualities that he listed. Obedience must be blind. It must be blind to the person who orders us. Obedience as a virtue has no eyes. In the military, this is called respecting the rank, not the man. We are respecting God by being obedient, regardless of the esteem we have for the man who holds the office. We must be, uh, the second uh, quality is, we must be prompt in our execution of those orders. We cannot drag our feet. The third is we must be humble in submitting our will to our superiors. 
forth, we must be faithful in carrying out those orders. Um, we must do so out of love. We must not do so begrudgingly. Fifth, we must do so voluntarily, without complaint, truly voluntary. And sixth, lastly, we must do so joyfully, finding joy and delight in following God through his superiors. Now, are you bound to obey someone with authority without any restrictions? No, this itself is actually not ordered. It's not ordered hierarchy, it is disordered. Is it even a sin? Uh, is it actually a, a sin to be overly obedient or overly disobedient? Yes, both of those are, are sins. To be extremely disobedient is to be disobedient to God and the authority he has given those over you. You're also committing sin by obeying without a fault and without discerning through prudence orders that either lack authority, legitimacy, or against God. We obey ultimately God before men. How many stories, though? If you read the stories of the saints, how many of those involved obedience to authority even when the authority was ignorant or was doubting or was corrupt. A lot. So, St. Juan Diego, who, saw, who um, saw, saw Our Lady of Guadalupe, um, he, went to, he went to the bishop to ask to build a chapel. The bishop did not believe him and asked for proof. He could have just said, I'm going to build that chapel anyways. Did he? No. He went back to Our Lady and he said that he needed to have proof. And he was given a gift, the, 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 the tilma that has the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe on it. He brought that back. He was obedient. He was obedient to the rightful authority. And because he was obedient, he was given a gift that has led to the conversion of millions and millions of people. St. Joan of Arc was obedient, even unto her death. Could she have resisted? Sure. But did she? No. She assented. And she was killed for it. But she was elevated now. To the holy saints of heaven and God's kingdom, those prelates who misuse their authority against her for their own benefit are forgotten. Unless you're a, a, a real a church historian, um, or even historian, because she, she did uh, uh, play a large part in the history of the Hundred Years' War, uh, you, you don't know who you know who Saint Joan of Arc is. You don't know who they are. They're forgotten, and they're likely damned. Although we can't know exactly. Right, misusing your authority is a massive sin. Uh, Saint Ignatius of Loyola said that we are bound to obey a superior, not on the account account of his prudence, of his goodness, or any of the other personal qualities he may or may not have um, that God uh, has endowed him with, but because he is God's representatives, why we are bound to obey him. Again, being blind in that obedience to the man, obedient to his station and authority. This brings us to when can you uh, disobey? This is, of course, a topic that is as much gray as it does kind of black and white areas. For the black and white, you know, these are very black and white. If a priest told you, let's say, you are receiving the, the Holy Sacrament and, you know, you should be receiving it on the tongue, kneeling. Puts it in there and he says, never mind, I want you to spit that on the ground. I want you to spit that into the trash can when you leave. This would be a desecration of our Lord as his true body, Right? You not only have a right, but the duty to disobey him because you know in your heart that this is wrong. You cannot, like to desecrate our Lord, you owe more um, 
uh, obedience to God than to that man. If your bishop said that confessions were no longer necessary for reception of the Eucharist in the diocese, like just don't you don't even need to worry about it. Don't go and do it. This goes against the revealed truth, the tradition, the deposit of faith, the teachings of God through His Church. This is not Catholic teaching, but the bishop's opinion. When it goes against tradition, when it goes against the revealed truths throughout history, this is no longer about obedience to the bishop. This is about obedience to his opinion. We know that this is not true. We know that one must be in a state of grace to receive the body of Christ or else it's a mortal sin. So you, regardless of that bishop's statement, know that you must seek out a confession prior if you have any mortal sins on your soul. So the last one, as we kind of move up, let's just say a pope made a statement that having, you know, relations with somebody before marriage was okay. As long as you're in love, as long as you have, you know, as long as it's not just a casual thing, as long as you're in love and in a loving, committed relationship, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But you know, from your knowledge of the faith, that this is not Catholic teaching. This is not revealed truth. This is not the deposit of faith. This is not tradition. And thus, once again, this is just a pope's opinion. He was not speaking ex cathedra. He was not speaking in line with tradition or the deposit of faith. Regardless of that Pope's opinion and the respect that you should give a due out of the virtue of charity, you cannot engage in this and thus you don't have a duty to obey and a duty to maintain. Or you do have a duty to maintain chastity according to church teachings on the subject. But those are kind of more easier and, and there's a lot more harder questions out there. The church does recognize that there's always going to be areas of confusion in terms of theology, liturgy, practice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, at all times. Um, even 2,000 years later, there's still questions that we don't have fully answered. Um, it was only within the last 100 years out of 2,000 that we, uh, 150, I guess, uh, that we were able to definitively understand and know that um, the Immaculate Conception, right? So there's always going to be, at times, certain aspects of the faith and things like that that have a lack of complete clarity on the subject. Um, and laity, religious, and all that will be kind of stuck in this quandary. Which way do I go with this thing? You know, and you may think that this is right, and then the the people in uh, the people who have authority over you, the bishops, cardinals, and things like that, um, think something else may be right, and a bishop is saying something else is right, these sorts of things. And when it comes to these kind of circumstances where people don't have clarity, where it's not clear we're making that, where it's not clear that we are making, and, and, and it has to be beyond our opinion, right? If it's not clear that we are making the correct choice, but you're pretty sure, um, but of course we feel that it is, but when we are honest with ourselves, we don't really know. We are still called to be obedient and should defer to the authority in these circumstances. There was periods of time when the Immaculate Conception was not, you know, there was people that disagreed with it within the church. But you would, if your bishop was saying, yes, Mary was Immaculate Conceived, you're not allowed to be preaching sermons on, if you're a priest, on saying that she wasn't, it hadn't been yet clearly defined, let's say in 1800, um, then you would need to defer to the bishop's authority. Either just don't talk about it, or when you are talking about it, you need to say that there was the Immaculate Conception. So we're called to be obedient in those types of situations, even as laity. And as I said earlier, in doing this, right? Or maybe I haven't talked about this, but I will now. 
in doing this, let's just say um, it's 1815 and uh, you don't, uh, you're doing some sort of devotion, and the bishop has asked you guys to do a devotion to the Immaculate Conception, but you're going, like, I don't really know if she was immaculately conceived, right? I don't really know yet. I haven't read enough or whatever. And the bishop says, no, in, in, in this diocese, we are going to do this devotion to the Immaculate Conception. You are bound to be obedient to him, right? And to follow through on that, let's say the converse, you understand that Mary was immaculately conceived, that this follows the theology that has been set forth in the tradition and deposit of faith, but your bishop says, no, no division, uh, no um, um, devotions about this, right? And then it turns out that the church does make this definitive, and that bishop was wrong. In whatever way that we may have been held accountable, we aren't, because we are being obedient and that bishop is the one who will be held to account for that if he does not repent of that sin or something like that so if they tell you to do something that is not objectively very clear some sort of sacrilege or heresy or something like that that it's in one of these kind of grayer areas and you follow and are obedient right then you will not be held account before god for these sorts of things um a kind of more timely example of obedience um, in this evergreen subject is the current controversy with Father James Altman, who is a, a pastor uh, of a parish in La Crosse, Wisconsin, at St. James the Less. Last year, he gained popularity. He preached a uh, online popularity. He preached a sermon where he apologized to his flock for abandoning them during COVID. He also spoke very harshly of bishops across the world who did and continue to shut the doors of the churches, to shut people out of the sacraments. Um, I agreed with him then, and I do, for the most part, still agree with him now on what he has said. Um, but he has continued to preach on this subject and the need for more spine within the priesthood and bishops in the general church culture. I agree with that. He has done multiple interviews across the internet and various shows over the last year. And recently, though, um, within the past week of, I think it was like mid-May, I'm doing, I'm recording this at the very, uh, on the 28th, he was asked to resign his post as pastor of the parish. And he has said that he's going to fight it. And he's hired a canon lawyer. Uh, and this process, process can take up to a year and goes all the way up to Rome. This isn't, a cut and dry case, in my opinion. Some people have made accusations as to past sermons that he's made, and he said this and he said that. Like, I don't know. I I, I haven't seen it. I, I really don't have time to, to go through all the different archives of past sermons. Um, so I'm not going to make any comment on those. I do believe he has a right to and should fight this via the process in place. I do think he should... Uh, I do think he needs to be more deferential um, in... In, in, he needs to be more deferential to obedience and how he has approached this, uh, the tactics, the words that he has used, as, as well as a lot of people in the trad community. Um, a lot of these tactics and things like that are very secular, very modern, very ignorant of church history. Um, in short, they're just short-term thinking. Have the bishops failed? Yes. Do they deserve to be called out? Yes. Do I think that they should be pro uh, that we should be so openly defiant of obedience? No. 
I think that the proper conduct for Father Altman would be to, what he, you know, in a way, what he did, announce that he received this request, announce that he's fighting it, but kind of beyond that, keep his opinions about the affair a lot more private. In, in my opinion, it does start this and other, the, the way the lack of charity. I'm not accusing him of lack of charity, but you know, voices within the traditional communities, I feel, has a lot of lack of charity. I have the same. I have the same issues and criticisms of the Holy Father and of a lot of the bishops that they do, but I think that this is creating a a real atmosphere of disobedience of that. Well, if they're not, if they don't hold to traditional values, if they don't believe in the same liturgy and the same traditional beliefs that we do they don't want to get the mass back to you know pre-55 right then i kind of just i can just disagree with everything that they say i can just call them any name i want to in the book um god knows his children and the church um the church in the long term has always honored those who were obedient. And those problems, no matter how large, work themselves out through the Holy Spirit, right? So by when I say the church has always honored those who were obedient, I mean that the church has recognized that there were a lot of problems throughout all of church history, right? Um, but those who were obedient to authority... Um, in their criticisms uh, are the ones who are later honored. Those who are not are not. Um, Jerome of uh, Savon uh, Jerome Savonarola, Savonarola, whatever, uh, is a good example. He was a Dominican friar um, who spoke out against, who railed against Pope Alexander the Sixth's corruption, and he. Pope Alexander was kind of the quintessential example of papal corruption during the Middle Ages and kind of, uh, I guess this is more out of the Middle Ages, kind of uh, enlightenment period. Um, and really, he was the the high watermark of the Borgia's power. They were a very powerful family um, in kind of Renaissance Italy. And he was basically elected through intrigue and bribery on behalf of that powerful family. He even fathered several children. He was definitely not a man who really cared about any of his obligations or anything like that towards the church. He was a man of the world. Um, he was so disliked, Pope Alexander was, that when he died, there wasn't even a requiem mass for him. A requiem mass is a mass in the repose of somebody's soul. There wasn't even a requiem mass for him. A pope... He was basically quietly buried and forgotten. Uh, Jerome, though, he called out the Pope publicly and railed against him in sermons, um, but he would—he was not obedient. And on one hand, you go like, why should you be obedient to corruption? But he was, eventually, he was later excommunicated and put to death, um, mostly just because he started to drink. A, a lot of it was, I mean, out of that lack of obedience, he started to grow a bigger head than than uh, than he was due. He started to claim abilities to perform miracles, but some uh, Franciscan uh, friar was starting to basically put him to the test and told him to walk across fire to show if he was unharmed and things like that. He, he, was, he ended up being humiliated and people lost faith in him. 
Jerome is pretty much forgotten, except for in some circles. And for the most part, you know, nobody remembers his public disobedience as he he was somebody who was his intentions were right he was trying to reform the church reform a lot of the abuses this was you know the the periods of indults and buying of indulgences and corruption within the church and those types of things but through the march of time through the working of the holy holy spirit within 60 years after alexander's death and there was a number of popes um in between there, uh, of varying degrees of corruption and attempted reforms, we ended up getting to Pope Pius V. And he was a holy man by all accounts. He practiced asceticism. He would wear a hair shirt out in public. He helped to bring about reforms of the church, ended the Council of Trent, or presided over the ending of the Council of Trent uh, in, in, in Reformation and Counter-Reformation, and um, ended a lot of all these sorts of things that had led to so much corruption within the church um, and corruption of morals, corruption of all these sorts of things. And in the end, we have to ask ourselves a very simple question, though, because we are approaching a, a period of time. There is, like, no one doubts this. This is one of the reasons a lot of people come into the trad community is because they, they've kind of, they're fed up, right? Uh, it's, it's, a lot of times people come into it because they're fed up with, with the corruption. They're going, what, what do we do? Uh, and then they start to discover these communities and they start to discover the beauty of the liturgy and how much that we've lost, right? And there's more to traditionalism than the Latin mass. Like that's, that's a very important thing, but there's a lot more to the traditional life than just that. But a lot of people, because of that, start to feel like they can just be overtly uncharitable, disobedient, and even just spit vile and venom at people in the church who are absolutely corrupt, who are absolutely saying statements that are not having anything to do, that, that are antithetical to the tradition of the church and the deposit of the faith. So their, their description is correct of the things that are wrong, but their prescription for how they act towards that. Instead of fasting and praying, I'm not saying they're not doing those too, but we need to be fasting and praying on behalf for the conversion of the souls of those people within the church that are promoting this corruption. That will do way more than publicly calling out the Pope or this bishop or this cardinal or whatever, right? So that we shouldn't be aware, so that we shouldn't say these sorts of things, but there's a way to do it charitably and there's a way to do it that just ends up pushing force forward uh, the evil one's divisiveness and confusion because you're pushing away people that would be normally interested in experiencing traditional Catholicism, dipping their toes in, but then they encounter two or three or four of these people um, who go, well, you know, I was thinking about this, but you know, I do kind of like this aspect of the Novosorder and then they got called a heretic and a pagan. That's not helping. You've just lost somebody more than likely. We have to ask ourselves, are we the linchpin in God's plans? If we do not speak, can God not speak? If we do not act, does this mean God can act? Lack of obedience, sedevacantism. This is a sedevacantism is a belief in some very small sections of traditionalist communities. It's, it's, a, it's actually a very minor, small amount of people, um, but they they believe that since Pope Pius XII, I believe it was since Pope Pius XII, I can't remember exactly when it started. Basically, what it means is like incidentism means empty seat. It means that they don't believe there's been a legitimate pope for about 60 years or so. 
Um, but lack of obedience, set of a contism, this is a sin of despair, a sin against the belief in the power of God that he cannot right the ship that has gone off course so that the restoration of the church can only be accomplished by you, can only be accomplished by, by your traditional parish. That if you don't disobey, this work won't be accomplished. We have to act. We have, yeah, it'd be better to obey, but we, we want to have good bishops to obey. So until we have that, we don't need to obey. This You're saying to God, uh, you know, I have to disrespect the authority that you've laid down because if I don't, then the church will be lost. It's all depending on me. It's all depending on, on these 20, 30 people, this 100 people, right? God's will was to create the church under St. Peter and apostolic authority. We are commanded to obey, so we are doing God's will, or I should say, are we doing God's will by going against God's will? Of course not. God cannot be contradictory in that fact. Sometimes immoral men are in positions of authority, even the papacy, like Alexander VI that I talked about. And while we want every priest, every bishop, every cardinal, and every pope to be holy men, pious men, we know that man has fallen in it, and thus those men can exhibit that fallen nature to lesser or more degrees. God's plan is not fully revealed to us. And often, really, even within the context of history, even just parts of this stuff, his plan only ends up being clear. And a lot of it we won't really understand until we are in God's presence after we're dead. We know God has also chosen immoral, unholy men to fulfill his will as well. Judas being the most glaring example. Christ had to be betrayed for the fulfillment, uh, for his crucifixion to occur. He predicted it. If Judas had not betrayed him, Jesus would have said, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And if Judas had not chosen, it was of his own free will. This idea that, well, you know, God made him do that. No, he knew he was going to of his own free will. He is the likely damn for it because he killed himself. Um, and, and you, you can't, you can't have like a deathbed confession to God and then kill yourself and still end up in heaven. Um, Judas had to do that. He was part of the fulfillment of the crucifixion and thus the resurrection and thus Christ's mission on earth. Judas was allowed to be tempted by Satan to betray him as God allows us to be tempted, as God allows us to be persecuted, as God allows us to have bad things happen to us. In the same way that Job was allowed to have all these things happen to him. Judas was allowed to be tempted by Satan to betray him. Sometimes evil is allowed to fulfill a greater glory. In our daily lives, temptations and evil are allowed to occur. They're not there to punish us. They're not, well, you know, you got tempted or this evil happened to you because you're a bad person. They're not there to punish, but to sanctify us through fire. God is not a sadist. He understands better than we that not only difficulty or through difficulty can we attain higher levels of holiness that, you know, ease and really ease and comfort are the enemies of salvation. A diamond is only formed through pressure and heat, but once it's formed and removed from the earth, that's when it's allowed to reflect the light. Like what God wants to do is to do this temptations through these, all these, all these sorts of sufferings. That's the pressure, the heat that's forming us into saints. And through that, once it's done and removed from the ground, God's light shines through us and then it can spread throughout the world. 
So am I, am I saying, oh yeah, well, you know, we should just discard the Latin rites, say nothing, embrace Norvis Odo, embrace xylophones and female priests and all the things of the world. Am I saying that we should say nothing about Pachimama or the never-ending synods, the German uh, bishops blessing sin? No. We are called to resist these things. We are called to speak the truth. We are, however, not called to place our need to resist above the divine requirements to obey. God's plans are not thwarted because I stop speaking, because you stop speaking, because whoever stops speaking. The devil does not triumph, and God's word that the gates of hell will not prevail against us is not made into a lie because a priest obeys a bishop's order in that manner. As I said, once again, to reiterate, there are gray areas as well as black and white ones where disobedience is the correct and right thing to do. But much of what I see, I'm talking about outside of those very specific circumstances, much of what I see, the venom spit from people's mouths against the church and against the prelates of the church, while I don't disagree that they are not men who are worthy of that office or worthy of that respect, they are do it. It's not bringing people to Christ. And it doesn't come from God. It comes from the confuser. It comes from the divider. A member of the, <clears throat> of the episcopate that divides and confuses is very bad. But we cannot reform the church. We cannot return her to tradition, return the true faith, and bring her back to glory by matching the tactics of the one who pushes the enemies of the church to do this. There's no sin in discussing these things of pointing out the better ways, of pointing out the holier ways, of pointing out the truth of the church. But there is a great sin against charity, among other things, and obedience to speak evil, and a great sin of scandal. And scandal is is basically, a, comes from the Greek word of creating a stumbling block. We cannot create our own stumbling blocks for others to remove somebody else's stumbling block because it's still there we remove one and left another or two or three what we need to do pray and fast repeat 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 we are god's children we are christ's church and we're called to be like christ and not the pharisees thank you for listening thank you for watching god we praise you te deum laudimus